Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 158, Listener Questions 3. Our first question is from a good friend of the blog and podcast. It's Ben from Canada. He was kind enough to send in an audio question. He says this. Hello, Dale. First off, my sincere thanks for your wonderful podcast and the helpful influence that you and your guests have had on my own learning. To my question, I spent quite some time last year reading a theologian named Peter Taylor Forsyth, and I think that he has an interesting approach to the doctrine of the Trinity, especially in his book, The Person and Place of Jesus Christ. First, he readily admits that New Testament theology is not Trinitarian theology, not even implicitly. Instead, he thinks that the doctrine of the Trinity is a best available explanation of Christian experience, namely the subjective peace with God and conscience that we enjoy on account of the work of Christ. He writes, The fulcrum of any vital doctrine about the person of Christ must be an experimental faith in him as Redeemer. My question Have you heard of Peter Forsyth or explored any avenues by which Christian experience can support a doctrine, even when that doctrine was unknown to the early church? Supposing that we share our Christian experience of salvation with the earliest believers, why think that we should also share their precise explanations of those experiences, namely the specific theology of the New Testament? Thank you. Thanks for the question, Ben. I have to admit I haven't had a chance to read Forsyth, but I'm just going on what you've said about him. I agree with him, then, that New Testament theology is not Trinitarian, even implicitly. In the New Testament, the one God is the Father. Jesus is a real human being, and he's the Son of God. One can argue about whether he pre-exists or was the direct creator, but in any case, he's not God himself. He's not a member of the Trinity. He's not divine the same way that the Father is. And the Holy Spirit, that's another discussion. Back to your question, though. Is the Trinity the best explanation of Christian experience? I don't think it can be supported in that way. I think that for this to be a required Christian doctrine, it would need to be a part of the apostolic message. And for it to be a part of the apostolic message, it would need to be clearly communicated, whether implicitly or explicitly, in the New Testament. I'm willing to grant that maybe it's the best explanation of what's there, even though it's not strictly implied by what's there. That's fine. We have to compare various Trinity theories against their non-Trinitarian rivals. In my view, it's clear that some Unitarian theory is going to better explain what the New Testament authors say and what they don't say. But what about skipping the whole biblical issue, sort of, and trying to found the Trinity on Christian experience? Well, I mean, it's a strange avenue to go on. What's more consistent, maybe, is the Roman Catholic approach. They just say, where do you get the Bible from? That's from the church. It's the church which gave you the Bible. It's the church which tells you how to interpret the Bible. It's the church which formulated these Trinitarian formulas. So, you have to accept those because you have to accept the authority of the church. God has guided the church. God has given his spirit to the church. And through the bishops, Christ reigns. 
And those bishops eventually got around to saying that the one God exists in three persons. Admittedly, maybe that was only around not long before the year 400, but that's okay because the spirit that inspired the apostles in the first century is the same spirit that inspired the apostles to pass on their authority to the bishops, and the bishops are guided by that spirit still. This is a position I understand. I don't think it's right for numerous reasons, but I do understand it. There's a kind of authoritarian approach to Christianity where there's a hierarchy of authoritative bishops that call the shots doctrinally. And this was strongly in place in the fourth century, and it even has roots in the second century. As a Protestant, I just don't accept it for a bunch of different reasons, like I said. Part of it is the results that they've come up with, which I think are mistaken, and part of it is their claim to apostolic succession, which I don't buy. But at least if you're saying that, you're giving a consistent view. I mean, after the precedent was set at Nicaea, the bishops thought that they had this ability to form a church-wide consensus by calling in bishops from all parts of the empire and then making authoritative pronouncements, which would then enjoy the enforcement of the emperor. And then they exercised that power. I mean, that's the mainstream view that you see, at least looking back on the creeds of 325 and 381. They say they're doing it in interpreting the scriptures to get the heretics out of the church. They don't say that they're formulating these Trinitarian formulas as an explanation of Christian experience. So if we're going to turn around in the 20th century and say that really the Trinity should be accepted because it's the best explanation of Christian experience, this is worrisome. I mean, we're coming up with a different explanation after the fact. We're coming up with something that they never would have said and that they did not cite as their reason for coming up with these doctrinal formulas. So I'm skeptical with the whole project for that reason. It's an after-the-fact speculative justification. I don't understand how what you say here, that is, the subjective peace with God and conscience that we enjoy on account of the work of Christ, I don't see why that would point us in the direction of a tripersonal God. If a person is saved by believing in Jesus, and Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God, and Jesus has sent this power to believers, then believers have this power and presumably are able to enjoy this peace which passes understanding. Maybe there's more to his case that I'm missing, but just from what you've said, it looks like it wouldn't favor a Trinitarian view over a Unitarian view that said the things the New Testament explicitly says. But there's another reason why I am hostile to this strategy, not just because it's new, but because I don't think Christian experience does support belief in a tripersonal God. Let me explain. Just about any born-again person that you meet will say that they've experienced the presence of God, or that they've felt the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not that they claim that they've beheld God in all of God's glory. It's not that. But they have, at times, been overwhelmed with the presence of God. I think that it's part of that experience where the presence of the Holy Spirit just is the presence of God, even though you're not seeing God in all of God's glory. That is almost universal among Christians. At least they have little tastes of it here and there. Some people much more than others. In contrast, there are a few people running around, a much smaller number, who claim that they've experienced Jesus. Like Paul on the road to Damascus, there are people who claim that the Lord Jesus Christ has appeared to them, sometimes with their eyes, like in an eyes-open vision. 
or that he's appeared to them in a dream or communicated with them in some other way. And this is rarer, and they describe it differently. They may thereafter experience God while worshiping in church or something, but unless they're just really confusing together God and Jesus, they're going to distinguish the presence of Jesus from the presence of God. Again, the disciples, according to the Gospels, saw the risen Jesus with his scars and wounds. They touched him, they ate with him. That's different than the presence of God that they experienced, say, in Acts chapter 2, and presumably at other times. So, common Christian experience is not of a tripersonal deity or a perfectly loving group of three, you know, a dance of three, etc. It's not obviously the experience of true God from true God or God in three persons, but there's the experience of the risen Jesus. That's one thing that's relatively rare. And then there's experience of the presence of God, which is just the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's really not rare. Some Christians regularly seek that out and, according to them, regularly experience it. I'm sure you can find an exception in some medieval mystic somewhere, but reading about various Christians' experiences with God, I can't remember any where they see like three human figures on a throne, or one head with three faces, or one body with three necks and heads, hearing three different voices at once. You don't get the tri-personal aspects of the Trinity in Christian experience, at least not that I recall. Again, I'm sure you can find somebody who claims they've had a vision or a dream where they've experienced the Trinity as such. I would be suspicious that a person's theology was coming into their imagination there and distorting what's going on. In biblical times, I don't think they were really concerned with explaining religious experiences. The naturalistic explanations probably seemed pretty poor. Psychology wasn't such a popular interest. They didn't have sort of Freudian outlook on things. Most people, Christian and pagan, would believe that people can experience supernatural beings or deities or angels. It's not that they were naive and were going to believe anybody who claimed that they had experienced God in some way. It's not that. It's just... I think that was sort of a commonplace thing to them, so they weren't particularly keen on explaining these experiences. They did, of course, some of them experienced the risen Jesus, and many more of them experienced the Holy Spirit. But I'm not aware of any ancient author that concludes that God is triune or tripersonal on such a basis. series of questions is from a listener and reader of the blog named Aaron. Aaron says, I just finished Clark's The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity, as per your recommendation, yesterday. I think that unless he has somehow misrepresented some of the early bishops, that all of them, at least all of the ones he quoted, were some form of subordinationist Unitarians. Do you agree? Yes, Aaron, I do agree. Of course, not all of the important people Clark quotes are bishops. There are people like Origen, who is just a priest. 
But yeah, he shows that the mainstream, at least the non-monarchians, in particularly the early 200s, were Unitarians in the sense that they thought that the one God was the Father, and that they considered the Son to be divine, but not in the same sense, and generally the Holy Spirit as well although they realized that that topic was a bit more obscure. And some of them, of course, would put the Holy Spirit in third place. So the three greatest beings would be God, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. And then below those, all the created things. That's a general characterization of views like you see in the middle of the 200s, like origin or novation. It's not just me who thinks that Clark is a Unitarian, despite the title of his book, The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity. Clark was widely understood to be a Unitarian, both in his immediate context when his book came out in the 1710s, and in a series of later controversies, particularly in England, throughout the 1700s. People were still reading Clark in the 1800s, and they recognized that he was a Unitarian. Although he's the kind of Unitarian who believes that Jesus existed before his human career and who thinks that the Holy Spirit is another personal being. And a lot of Unitarians uh, didn't like those two facts about his theology. So some of them would not call him a Unitarian, they call him an Arian. But of course, he wasn't an Arian in any meaningful sense. Aaron continues with his thoughts after reading Clark. He says, Oneself Trinitarian theories are a bust, that is, unless we want to say that the early Christians were entirely off base. Yes, Aaron, I agree. They are a bust. Unfortunately, that's probably the majority view among Trinitarians who have theological training. They fall into the oneself camp. So the Father and Son are the same being and the same personal being, but they're persons, but person means something less than we think it does. A person means a mask, a role, a mode of being, maybe even an essential mode of being. Yeah, but basically then you have the father and son being one intelligent being, one self talking with himself, speaking in one mode with himself in another mode or something like this. And that's not a good way to read the New Testament. Aaron continues, in order for some kind of three-self Trinitarianism to be true, the early Christians would have had to have been in error marginally. Subordinationist Unitarianism is close to three-self Trinitarianism, but assuredly not synonymous. Yeah, so on the surface, the Clarkian type of subordinationist Unitarianism looks a lot like a three-self Trinity theory. Of course, the big difference is that on the subordinationist view, the Trinity is not the one true God. The Father is the one true God. So that's a pretty big difference. And that difference is what makes the subordinationist view a better fit with the Bible than a three-self trinity theory. Aaron continues, Most Christians today follow Trinitarianism, though they cannot articulate it well, or in many cases at all. It is sacred tradition in the highest and continues to survive by the conviction of many, but also by the peer pressure to accept it by others. Well said, Aaron. You really can't overestimate the power of that peer pressure. That, I think, is the biggest factor here. But honestly, also, if you've only ever heard one side of the case, if you've only heard Trinitarians expounding Scripture, and they tell you, some of them, that it's really rather obvious there, then you just have that paradigm in your mind, and Trinity is all you can see when you look at the Bible. You simply suppose that it's there, that it was just discovered there. And I'll say this by way of conciliation, the Trinity has become the majority report 
or the majority family of reports in mainstream Christianity. And this puts some pressure on anybody who's going to argue that actually no, the minority view is correct. I mean, why is this so popular if it's not obvious? Or at least if the case is not overwhelming? I accept that burden. I'm willing to argue that a Unitarian view is what best explains what is and is not said in the Bible. And I'm willing to argue that there are some things taught in the Bible that are inconsistent with any Trinity theory. The main one of those things is that the one God just is the Father himself. Aaron continues, That Trinitarianism in whatever form is not known to have been expressed using modern or ancient terminology by anyone for the first 300 or more years after Christ should seriously bother us today. Simply put, no one, as far as I can tell, thought of three co-equal persons who were God in exactly the same metaphysical sense, or oneself who is somehow three simultaneous manifestations or modes. God is never seen by any early Christian to be being yet not a person or any of that, but that is usually necessary when trying to formulate a Trinitarian theory. Well, Aaron, of course, a oneself Trinitarian does have God being a person or a self, I think you're right, this is disturbing, that Trinitarianism is as late as it is, and that when you read early mainstream Christians, you don't see them putting out this type of theory. Was there anyone who thought that there were three co-equal persons who were God in the same metaphysical sense? Well, none of the main figures, people like Irenaeus, Origen, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, Novation, Hippolytus, Theophilus, not people like that, but it's unclear what some of the Monarchians thought, and some of the Monarchians have been interpreted to say that God eternally lives in three ways, and that's what the Trinity is, or something like that. So there's something like three simultaneous manifestations or modes, at least if any of the Monarchians really said that the Father was crucified, or talked about God as the Son Father, and things like that. It's possible that some of them thought that there were three, quote, persons that weren't selves within the one divine self. I'm not sure. It's obscure, really, what the Monarchians were saying, and it's pretty clear that it wasn't only one thing. What they had in common is that they rejected the then-recent Logos theories, which posited two creators, one working through the other. Aaron continues, the Bible does always, as Clark states, use the word God to refer to either the Father singly or the Son singly. Exceptions, such as calling Moses God, have nothing to do with treating God as if he is not a self. Yet the Father, if we are being honest, does take primacy over the Son in Scripture and is usually the one referred to by a use of the word God. Aaron, that's right. That's a very important point. The usage of the New Testament is really overwhelming in this respect. When it says God or the God, it almost always means the Father. It's like 99% of the time. Basically, God always means the Father, except when there's something in the context that shows you it's got to be somebody else. So in Hebrews 1, for instance, the Son is referred to as God, but then he's described as having a God, which is God. So there, the word is being used for someone other than God, or where Paul calls Satan the God of this world. Obviously, that's not God. Whether it's being used literally or metaphorically is an interesting question, which maybe doesn't have an obvious answer. 
I've also noted that in many cases, a biblical writer will swap out the terms God and the Father just for stylistic reasons, because they don't want to say God, God, God over and over. So they swap out God and our Father or Heavenly Father, the Father, things like that. That's what you do when you're working with co-referring terms, when you have two singular terms that refer to the same one. It's not unusual in human languages to have terms that are usually synonymous, but sometimes refer to something else. Maybe around your house, the husband calls the wife honey, uh, but then once in a while he'll call his daughter honey. That's not because he thinks the daughter is the wife or is trying to imply that that's one woman or one person. It's just a related usage. And in the context, it's generally not confusing. It can be confusing if someone's not familiar with what's going on, but generally it's not. Generally, the New Testament is not confusing. There are some cases where it talks about the Lord, and you wonder if it's supposed to be God or Jesus, the Son of God. There are a few problem passages where it's unclear whether the term God is being used for the Father or for the Son. In other words, there's some ambiguity in the term. But this is just a tiny handful of cases The regular usage by all the New Testament authors is very clear and very consistent. continues, Clark's arguments are powerful because they are logical and comprehensively deal with the New Testament. They also appeal to at least five or six early bishops who seem to agree with him generally. Although some may have been Logos theorists, the overall point is that they were subordinationist Unitarians. I think just about all the people that Clark appeals to can be called Logos theorists. Some of them held a one-stage view and some of them held a two-stage view. What he wants to defend is a one-stage view where eternally, mysteriously, by his will, the Father generates the Son. That's a view like you see in Origen or Novation. Some of the people he's appealing to don't clearly hold that. Irenaeus is unclear about it. Some of the earlier figures clearly are two-stage theorists where God eternally has his logos, that is his reason or wisdom, within him just as a divine attribute. And then when it's time to create, well, he wants to create through an intermediary, so then he brings the Logos into existence as a second agent, as a second substantial being. I've explained how this is Tertullian's view in a forthcoming article in the European Journal for Philosophy of Religion. It's also a podcast episode. Both are entitled Tertullian the Unitarian. But this also seems to be presupposed by Justin Martyr and by other early adopters of Logos theory. Clark's case is powerful. He does comprehensively deal with the New Testament. Aaron continues, I'm officially reserving final judgment about this, but I can't find a hole anywhere in what he's saying. And unless people are ready to say Justin Martyr was a heretic, and none of them are, then this is an acceptable view of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and also beats the pants off of inconsistent Trinitarian theories with regard to historical roots, biblical data, and logic. 
I have found some holes in what Clark is saying. I don't accept his case for the personhood of the Holy Spirit. I don't accept his case for the pre-human career of Jesus. And also, as earlier Unitarians have pointed out, Clark seems to take the view, like some pre-Nicene theologians did, that this eternal divine logos takes the place of a human soul in the man Jesus. I think that a human body, which is enlivened by an eternal divine self, I think that that would not be a human being. Clark thinks that it would. He's agreeing with the early two natures theories. He's not obviously obligated to the 451 statement, but he is committed to the eternal logos taking on a body. He doesn't want it to take on a body and soul because he thinks a body and soul would be a second person. This is the problem that a lot of them had, and they struggled mightily with this until they were told to just shut up and say these standard formulas at the Council of 451. So I think he's got some Christological and biblical problems, and various interpreters, be they Unitarian or Trinitarian, I think have ironed out some of his misreadings of Scripture that come into play in the book. But still, a lot of it is solid. He's clear about showing that in the Bible, the one true God, the Almighty, is the Father. It's not the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not also the Son. It's just the Father. Jesus is a different being, as well as being a different person. I don't think there's anything obviously incoherent about Clark's view. I explained I'm not sure that his Christ would really be a human being, like the Bible emphasizes, and I think it gets some of the passages wrong, but yeah, it's fairly well developed, and there's a reason why this was a popular view in the days of origin. It makes a certain amount of sense, and it fits the scriptures fairly well, at least if you make a few popular interpretive moves. Aaron finishes up by asking, Am I following all of this correctly? Have I understood rightly? Any thoughts I would appreciate? I know you do not share Clark's view, but I'm having a hard time seeing anything explained any better than his view. I don't think most Christians are aware of this view. They mostly think after Trinitarianism that the next step down is Arianism. I know I did. I didn't even have the subordinationist Unitarian view as a mental category or possibility before investigation. Aaron, thanks for that big, long series of questions. They were all good questions. I'm glad that you read Clark and got a lot out of it. It's a lot of work to read Clark, but it's really a rewarding book. I really do think it's a lost classic. I do think you're understanding him correctly. He is a subordinationist Unitarian. That is the kind of person who thinks the Father is the one true God, and yet he has eternally given existence to two others to the Son and the Spirit, who are divine in a sense, but not in a sense that makes them the one true God, or even persons within the one true God. I think he's right that you don't see a tripersonal God in the Bible, but you do see talk about God, the Father, and his Son, the man Jesus, and also the Spirit of God, whatever that is. A couple more points about Clark, just to keep in mind. He was accused of being an Arian in his day, and he vehemently denied it always, he denied it because he denied the distinctive thesis of Arian theology, which is that there was a time when the sun was not. He said, no, I think the sun always was. Sometimes Arianism is summed up, I think, not very well as saying that the sun is just God by courtesy, or he's not properly so-called. 
But Clark thinks that God shared his divinity. He shared all of the attributes that he could share. Now, of course, you can't share aseity or independence. You can't give another being the property of existing and having all of your perfections independently of anything else. That property, just in principle, can't be given away. He does think that God shared his omniscience and omnipotence and perfect goodness with the Son and with the Spirit. So, no, he's not at all saying that they are God by courtesy or that they're just improperly so-called. He does think that they're divine, more or less the same way that Origen did. Another thing about Clark that you need to realize is that he was an Anglican minister, and he was very, very interested in being as Catholic as he could possibly be, because Anglicanism tries to remain true to Catholic tradition, small-c Catholic tradition, and many of his fellow Anglicans were interested in the Church Fathers and trying to show why maybe even Anglicanism is more faithful to ancient Catholic tradition than the Roman Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox. So we did have an orthodox slash small c Catholic concern, and he had a practical concern as well. He didn't want to get fired, and he was brought up on trial for heresy by the Anglican leadership, and he narrowly escaped with his job. In his day, they had recently gotten over imprisoning heretics and hanging them and burning them and so on. He didn't have to fear for his life, but he had to fear for his living and the well-being of his family, and he had to fear for his reputation. So he was very conservative, and he wasn't only concerned with the Bible. He was also concerned to show that his views were traditional. And I think he does. What he shows is that his type of subordinationist Unitarian view is a view that was very widespread in mainstream Christianity in the 200s, and to some extent in the end of the 100s, although I doubt that it was a majority view at that point, based on the limited information that we have. If you think of reformers as wanting to roll back Christian tradition, people like Luther and Calvin wanted to roll it right back to Augustine and no further. They wanted to accept the revised Nicene Creed of 381 and say, yes, that's obvious. That's obviously what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the Trinity, and it's just a horrible heresy if anybody disagrees with that. And furthermore, we're happy to use the powers of the state to smash the heretics. And they advocated for that, and they contributed to it sometimes, personally. Clark wanted to reform back to an earlier point in the history of mainstream Christianity. Like a lot of early modern Protestants, and particularly philosophers, they think that at a certain point in Catholic history, it's not really clear exactly when, but at a certain point they think that the theology of Catholicism devolved into just hair-splitting nonsense, basically unprovable speculations and endless wrangling. I think Clark thought that the tradition took a bad turn into contentious nonsense right about soon after the original Nicene Creed, sometime in the 4th century. And so if you ask him what does he think about the 5th uh, and 6th ecumenical creeds, or even the 4th, he just doesn't care to agree with them. He wants to satisfy the Bible and early Christian tradition, and at a certain point he's getting off the Catholic bus. Well, if you're a Protestant, you've got to do that. Otherwise, you should be under the authority of the bishops still, either the Roman Catholic bishops or the Eastern Orthodox bishops, both of which could trace their lineage, arguably, to the bishops of the 4th century. At least Clark is somewhat clear about it. I think Protestants that are Trinitarians are very unclear about this in their own minds and even conflicted. 
Some of them will take the classical reform line that they only accept the creeds insofar as they correctly summarize biblical teaching. But then they generally lose interest, I think, after the 451 creed, although a few of them will go farther. I don't think you can maintain that that's all the creeds are doing. I don't think the Nicene Creed of 325 is only giving pure, true explication of Scripture. I think it's adding some content. A lot more content is added in the later creeds as we go on. I'm the type of Protestant who thinks things need to be rolled back farther than Origen. I've been reading a lot of Origen lately, and the more I read, the more I'm convinced that he got us off on a wrong track in a couple of different ways. One of them was this speculation about eternal generation and procession. He was the one who really mainstreamed that, as far as I understand. The first one to clearly teach it. Another difficult area is his Christology. But if you're of the mind that the New Testament clearly teaches the pre-human existence of Jesus and that God created the world through Jesus, like you might think it says in 1 Corinthians 8 and John 1, then yeah, if you also accept the personhood of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have Clark's view or something very much like it. And to dismiss it with the old polemical label, Arian, is just foolish. What does this have to do with Arius? Really nothing. Clark was not an Arian. He didn't read Arius and become convinced by him. Clark was working on earlier Catholic authors and trying to understand the Bible with their help. Of course, other of the so-called Arians were doing that too back in the 4th century. Some earlier episodes of the Trinity's podcast explain why I get off the bus with regards to the pre-existence of Jesus you could listen to episodes 61 and 62 with Dr. Dustin Smith, who talks about the type of pre-existence that Jewish writers would talk about in the first century, where it's not literal pre-existence, but it's pre-existence in the divine plan, basically. The next podcast, 63, Thomas Belsham and other scholars on John 8:58, before Abraham was, I am, what? What does that mean? I am what? I think it means I am predestined to be the Messiah. If you want to contrast a real social Trinitarian or three-self Trinitarian with what Clark says, episode 57, I interview Professor Richard Swinburne on his famous theory. Episodes 27 and 28, I interview my friend Dr. William Hasker, very accomplished Christian philosopher who's written probably the best three-self Trinity book that's out there. You can hear him expound his views and hear him answer some tough questions for me. Podcasts 25 and 26, I talked to Pastor Sean Finnegan, who's another biblical Unitarian like me. This is about how to understand the New Testament usage of phrases like the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. And I find his perspective persuasive, more persuasive than Clark's more traditional Catholic approach to that topic. Another thing you might read after Clark is the three-authored book, The Son of God, I interviewed the three authors in episodes 117 to 119. There's a Trinitarian, a so-called Arian, and a so-called Socinian. Socinian is my friend, Dr. Dustin Smith. And I do think that that exchange brings out the strength of the non-preexistence interpretation of the New Testament. Smith does a good job there. So as you're thinking through Clark, those are some resources that you might find helpful.
David on Twitter asks, Since kings are placed in power by God, why were early Christians forbidden to offer prayers to the dead emperor? I'm not sure, but I think this is an objection in question form. An objection to my claim that in the New Testament, Christians are supposed to worship Jesus, not because Jesus is God himself, or because Jesus has a divine nature, or because Jesus is as divine as the one God is divine. I claim that in the New Testament, Christians are supposed to worship Jesus because he's been raised and exalted to the right hand of God. It's that exaltation which implies in their minds that we are supposed to worship Jesus. The questioner correctly says that according to the Bible, it is by the providence of God that any king, any top ruler rules. That's right. And because they're in a sense put there by God and are doing the work of God, according to the New Testament, we owe them the kind of honor that's due to kings or presidents, governors, mayors, etc. I wouldn't say that's the same kind of honor. Being raised to the throne of a country is not at all the same as being raised to God's right hand in heaven. So why, in my view, is it wrong that Christians should offer prayers or some other kind of worship to a dead emperor? First of all, it's idolatry on the biblical definition. This would involve giving gifts or bowing to a certain image. My understanding is that the prohibition against idolatry is still in force. Also, the dead king, the dead emperor, doesn't have that position anymore. They don't have the position, they're not due any kind of special honor. In some, God never said we should pray to any dead emperor or pray in the name of a dead emperor and never said that we should engage in idolatry in the worship of any such being. Moving on, one last silly question before we go. My friend Corby on Twitter asks, Do you and Bill Valicella, that's the maverick philosopher, ever talk Trump and politics? Politics, yes, once in a while. Honestly, we usually have, when we get together, more important things to talk about. We haven't really talked too much about Trump. Dr. Valicella is a Trump supporter. I am a never-ever Trump person. That, my friends, is probably about as much politics as you're going to hear on the Trinity's podcast. Thanks to everyone for the questions. They're really great questions. It's really a privilege to have such a smart and informed and passionate audience. It's a lot of what keeps me going doing this. I'm not sure when I'll do an episode like this again, but uh, if you send me questions, I may or may not have time to answer them, but I may bank them up and do this in an episode again soon if I have enough questions. You're always welcome to upload audio feedback. Sometimes I will answer questions even just at the start or end of a normal episode. That might be an interview or something else. Thanks for listening to the podcast. As you know, there's not really any set format here. Sometimes I interview an author of an important book. Sometimes I'm just presenting some historical source. Once in a while, answering questions. Sometimes I'm explaining some historical episode or some historical source. The only thing I insist on is that it doesn't waste your time. So I hope you've enjoyed these two Q&A episodes. This week's thinking music has been the track Divider by Chris Zabriskie. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download the entire track.
If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com groups trinities. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.